Hi, everyone. This is the Wellbeing Designers podcast. My name is Reka Deak. I am your host. In the first season of the podcast, we will meet the first generation of well-being leaders. They are the ones who are called head of well-being or similar in big organizations. Their responsibility is to navigate through the growing amount of well-being offerings to create value for employees while also keeping the executive leadership team engaged about the topic of well-being. They are proving that investing into well-being pays off and creates sustainable performance and business success. They are well-being designers. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of the Well-Being Designers podcast. Our guest today is Nick Davison, the former head of well-being at John Lewis Partnership, where he was the head of well-being for the 80,000 co-workers of the business for 10 years. The John Lewis Partnership is a British company which operates department stores, supermarkets, banking and financial services, and other retail-related activities. The privately held public limited company is owned by a trust on behalf of all its employees. Nick joined John Lewis Partnership in 2011 with a brief to redesign and create a health service to reflect the changing needs of the partnership. In 2021, he led the creation of an integrated health and well-being service combining the social leisure benefit responsibilities, including five hotels, with the internal employee assistance service covering financial and emotional support and the occupational health service. This people-centric model provides proactive and reactive education, engagement, and support through both digital and physical delivery channels. Today, Nick runs his own well-being strategy consultancy as part of a portfolio career. Because Nick's passion for painting has seen him opening his own online art gallery in 2022. Outside of work, Nick enjoys rugby, skiing, and surfing. Welcome, Nick. Good morning. Good morning, Rika. Nice to be on your cast. We are all very curious. First of all, what brought you into well-being and how did you get into this role? I, I thought about this before, and I'm not sure whether I chose well-being or well-being chose me. If I go back in time before joining John Lewis, um, I've worked at Aviva, um, global insurer in their health business as head of strategy. At the end of the 1990s, this new kind of language started to emerge from America, talking of well-being and wellness, and no one really understood what it was. And I think um, we did some work there looking at um, what consumers would think, what employees would think around some of the things. And the concept of a continuum of, on one side, um, needing help from poor health um, through to the other side of spiritualism and a sense of holistic well-being started to take shape. And in the middle, there was this whole kind of area around, I want to look good, feel good, which 
pretty much felt like a retail kind of environment. And having done that work, the people came looking for someone to fill a role to blank sheet of paper to redesign um, the services that were provided and have been for some time. Um, and I was lucky enough to be selected. Based on my previous experience, um, I'd also spent a little bit of time in occupational health um, for a business that Aviva acquired. So I came with probably a strange, but probably quite unique set of um, skills, but also appreciation of how the world was changing and the focus on the proactive rather than just the reactive. Um, so that's how I fell into it. Um, kind of an extension of, um, I guess, my professional work at Viva. But then I was able then to bring it to life more fully in time at John Lewis. Mm, yeah, that sounds super interesting because, as you mentioned, it was early days. Most people, the major part of the world, started to talk about well-being just before COVID, and then COVID really elevated the topic. So I would be really curious to know what, why was well-being so important for John Lewis partnership, and if there were some organizational challenges that well-being meant to solve. I think employee well-being is important to every business. Um, every organization of whatever size whether you're a small tech company or a large public sector organization is dependent on the people that work in that business their productivity is what makes that business um, whether it sells um, whether it sells its services or products um, so the health and happiness and well-being of its employees is paramount to its success for me there's a direct link um, to that and you can go back to research done at Harvard with the service profit value chain. And there's various academic um, studies that have looked at this. But the reality is people want to generally do well at work. They want to feel like their employer um, looks out for them. Um, it's a cultural thing as much as anything else. Um, but if you want to be your best organization that you can be in terms of your results, your sales, your performance, you need your people to be at the best that they can be, whether that's physically, emotionally, financially, um, whether socially or spiritually. That's why um, every business should have this on their radar. Every business should be proactive around doing something about it. Um, it's not easy. Um, and for an employer, there's always this tension of, well, what are our responsibilities and what are the responsibilities of the individual or the state? Um, uh, different countries have different health systems. Um, but ultimately, each of us is responsible for taking some care of our own health and well-being. Um, mm. However, as we see at the moment with the cost of living crisis and physically things like the war in Ukraine, it isn't always possible um, to determine your own outcomes. And so the employer, if you want the best of your people and you want people to stay and work for you in an organisation that cares for them, um, increasingly are recognising they need to do more. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned this topic because it's really a discussion how much it is an individual responsibility and how much it is the company's responsibility. It's clear that it has been always there, the role of well-being in companies. How did this change within these 10 years that you experienced? There isn't one answer to this and there isn't one dimension to well-being and there isn't one individual person, right? We're all different. And I think... Having worked in a large organization of 80,000 people, each of those individual people have their own personal view of what well-being means to them. And that also makes this hard. So personal choices and personalization around all of this is difficult. 
Um, but there are some truths, there's some consistencies around all of this as well. Each of us has our own physical well-being, a sense of how is our body, what is it good, in good shape or not such good shape, um, psychological well-being around our, our mind and um, how well we're coping with that and actually we're thriving or actually we're anxious or more significantly depressed or other forms of mental illness. Our, our sense of relationships around at home and at work, our friends, family and all those other things have a big determinant on our, our sense of social well-being and whether we feel isolated and lonely or whether we feel happy and we have people around us as a support network. Financially, the same. It isn't just about money that we earn um, from our work, although that's important, but it's also around the other aspects of where we live and the cost of food and fuel and all those other things, which right now feel really pressured in many places. Um, and then finally, a sense of purpose of who are we, what are we trying to achieve, where do we fit in society and in, a, in and indeed within the company that we work for. Um, so for me, a part of the challenge is actually, um, as people, we don't know what we don't know. So those boundaries with employer and employee are blurred in places. But I think what we should do is actually recognise that employers have a, a role to play in um, providing opportunity, providing education and promoting um, some of those positive, proactive choices rather than just living with poor outcomes because no one bothered to say anything. You mentioned these dimensions of physical, psychological, financial purpose. Did you see any shift um, during these 10 years that one was a bit yeah. more in the highlight than the other? I think if I go back 10 years, um, physical well-being would have been more readily understood um, and more evident and more responsible for more time is missed from work. Uh, but I think over the last 10 years, mental health has become um, much more um, freely discussed. So the stigma that used to um, people weren't op open or prepared to talk about it because of what it might do to their career choices or chances of promotion or getting laid off. Um, hard to believe that would happen today, but perhaps, but it did. So one of the welcome, I think, changes has been society's willingness to talk openly about mental health um, it's still there's still work to do there's still people don't self-declare um, their own challenges for fear of what others may think but it's much better than it used to be um, I think also we've also seen with covid pandemic particularly the rise um, of um, anxiety and mental health related um, impacts from things like social isolation um, or lack of connectivity or not being able to go to work physically and the breakdown of relationships you know, and those type of things. So whilst I think it's become more evident and people more willing to engage and talk, which is great, social media has helped with that, but there's also the negative impact of not just work, but also social media in terms of what it can do around um, trolling and cyberbullying and you know, self-image and all of those things as well. So there's some tensions in there. But I think it's much better today that we talk openly uh, as a society um, about the struggles that people are having mentally and actually help try and help support that. That's really true. We experienced that here as well in Switzerland. <laughs> I think it's common. I think the other thing I'd say the bigger difference is from 10 years ago is the impact that technology's had. So, um, again, most of that is a lot of that is positive. Um, enabling people to access services and support that they couldn't before. But also there's some aspects of that which is also 
can be negative. In terms of your role, before we go into some specific details, what you have done for employee well-being, did you have um, a customer-facing role and analyzing in a way the well-being of your customers, John Lewis partnership, or was it more focused on the employees? So it was focused on the employees. It was internally focused back to those 80,000 um, co-owners. But um, the key, and this comes back to the partnerships um, founder back in 1999, there was a whole recognition that to provide great customer service, your employees need to be fit and healthy to do so. And a hundred years ago, you wouldn't have said, you wouldn't have talked probably about mental health but it's as true of mental health and financial health uh, quite clearly. But also the other aspects around things like financial well-being, because if people are struggling to feed their children, pay the bills, keep the roof above their house, they will bring that anxiety and that sense of worry with them when they come to work. Um, and things like tiredness have become much more prevalent in society because people don't sleep well. And they don't sleep well for a number of reasons. You mentioned when you joined, you designed a certain program and you evolved that. And there was even an award-winning program of John Lewis. Can you tell a bit more about that? What was it really about? Yeah, of course. When I first joined in 2011, um, the partnership had three different approaches based on different divisions within the business and how they provided health support. Um, I was given a, a kind of a blank sheet of paper to say, we know this needs to change, but we're not sure how. Um, and so I was given the responsibility and the great opportunity to design a new operating model, um, which was went live in 2013. And the essence of that was around providing um, consistency, um, greater accessibility and, and clearer transparency around what was delivered. Um, and historically, the two different business brands um, had deliver service differently to each other and there was another approach to head office and so we brought that together in one new model which was delivered nationally so where, wherever you worked it didn't matter where you worked because actually you would experience the same quality of service and that service was then more transparent it was reported we measured the improvement that we made and were able to help people make in terms of their physical and their mental health and musculoskeletal service part of the service and also the mental health went on to win national awards um, and actually became case studies in a number of um, sort of well-known well-being related books that were produced um, that said 10 years or so it would have been eight years is quite a long time and so actually that model changed we changed it a couple of times subsequently because actually the need for change became more evident but also structurally and organisationally, we could see the benefits and bringing things together into one well-being team rather than having you know, the reactive health over there, the financial assistance and emotional over there and the social and leisure side over there. So we combined all of those things in 2020, which allowed us to bring four of the five well-being elements together into one single team and one management structure. So that combined all aspects of the preventative and reactive, um, physical health, mental health, financial health, um, and social um, well-being, um, which is probably unique, I think, in the UK at that time. Um, there's more work to do. It's an on, it's not, there isn't a destination. It's a journey, as the cliche says. It sounds like previously it was decentralized, and then you centralized it. Was it connected to any other um, 
organizational transformation? Initially, it was yes, it was aligned to the big reorganization of um, the HR function and the way that the people services were run within the business, um, which you'd expect. And similarly to the health and well-being, um, those emerged, um, those evolved over time. So things like diversity and inclusion wasn't really thought about or spoken about in the same way as it is today. Um, and responsibilities within specific team, how they work with the well-being uh, team, how that aligns together through the internal communications are all much more integrated today than they would have been 10 years ago. If you have to choose one intervention that was really impactful or your favorite one, then what would it be? Um, I think the model we created was a blended approach. So we retained an in-house occupational health nursing team. And that was seen where many in the market were doing or outsourcing it to a third party provider. We did that deliberately because we wanted to retain control and understood that the relationship between an employee and their line manager is the key to making this work operationally on the ground. And to do that, you need a good understanding of how the business works. But I think the key bit then was actually then being able to create the ecosystem of a single national physiotherapy provider, a single national mental health provider, and a range of other services that kind of plugged into the core that was retained within our own business. And I think that gave us a unique insight that perhaps others didn't have and a reliance not just on one single provider, but actually a collection of specialists that was appropriate to what our business needed, our people needed, and delivered, and not just their physical or mental needs, but actually locationally, um, the spread of the business around the United Kingdom, but also in Indian Asia. You had some kind of hotels as well that the company yeah. was operating. Can you tell a bit more about that? It sounds very unique. It's, well, again, it's unique. And um, the partnership has five hotels run exclusively for the use of the employees. Uh, and it forms part of a bigger um, social and leisure um, focus. So of the 80,000 employees, 60,000 belong to the um, social membership called Partner Choice. Um, 15,000 um, actively take part in one of 23 different clubs and societies. So they spend time, their own time in leisure time, doing something they enjoy, whether it be singing, whether it be um, the arts, theatre, sailing, running, skiing something they enjoy doing, but they do it with other people that also work in the business, not necessarily in their shop or in their part of the business. Um, and that is hugely powerful um, because it gives, it means the business is highly connected so people have relationships outside of their local sphere of business unit or wherever they work. Um, it provides an opportunity to learn new skills, to do something you enjoy doing. Um, and I think that's hugely powerful. In terms of the hotels, there were five hotels. They were quite small, but they're all in beautiful places. And it was designed to create memories for the employees and their families that you wouldn't get the opportunity to do at the prices that we would charge because they were, were subsidised and discounted to an extent. Um, outside of that, we also put on uh, exclusive events for things like um, theme parks. Social well-being is often underrated, undervalued or forgotten altogether. It's been hard during COVID because obviously physical restrictions were in place for some time. Um, but even then, they were doing virtual rock choirs and various things to keep people having a good time. 
there was a news, I think it was more than a year ago, about Salesforce, who also acquired the big land to create a retreat center. Yeah. So it looks like some companies are getting on this path. Yeah. And it was also mentioned and highlighted that it's not only for leadership or for the no, no. It's for special everyone. ones. Yeah, it's for everyone. How did you measure the success of these well-being interventions? This is an important question to report it back to the business and keep the leadership engaged. So we used to split between lead indicators and lag indicators. What would tell us what's coming down the track later on? So if you look at the lead indicators, they would be the number of employees uh, engaged with our positive psychology um, app that we provided free of charge um, and not just how many and how long but actually what type of activity what training modules were completed by them they chose to you know, spend some time learning more about um, we would look at the line manager mental health training specifically around how many had attended because with a 6,000 and plus um, line management population it's really important you understand who's equipped to be able to help their people that work for them. Um, we quarterly ran quarterly um, employee surveys around happiness, life satisfaction, worthwhile activities, anxieties. Um, and that was very much used to benchmark against um, a UK measure that the Office of National Statistics to do exactly the same thing. Um, so we had some sense of were our people happier or less happy or more anxious or less than actually the rest of the UK population. So we got some sort of sense as to um, what they were feeling. Um, and then we looked at things like um, the social activity engagement, how many people are in, taking part in clubs and societies and doing things beyond their contracted work. Mm. And then on the lag indicators, if you like, the things that happened, um, you know, how many health referrals were we seeing how was health improved from the treatment, whether that be physical, um, musculoskeletal interventions or counselling and cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, so the difference the treatment made before when they were first referred to when actually the treatment was finished. And you know, we found, for example, mental health, those people treated, there was an 88% improvement. On average, everyone was below caseness and didn't require further treatment, having been through treatment recognizing these were from mild to moderate conditions not severe which we deliberately chose not to uh, um, provide because we didn't think we were able to do that properly. we'd also measure the number of days saved so on average every year we would save more than sixty thousand days from our physiotherapy service in terms of lost productivity um, then we'd also look at the number of health referrals coming through how fast we were responding to them and the levels of financial assistance and support required from people. Um, because again, whilst um, that was a reaction to what happened in their life, uh, you wanted to make sure that actually those levels were manageable and within um, a trend. And in order the listeners have also a good understanding of the population, these 80,000 people, how many of them were uh, office workers and the other part field workers? I think it's exactly important. That. Yeah, exactly that. And I think so of our 80,000, 5,000 or so work from head office at that time, the majority works in shops or in warehouses in, or in distribution um, and in across 400 sites. Regionally, where there are variances in London, 
is a very distinctly different place to some of the um, outlying cities and towns um, in the UK um, and the transport and housing and actually where the correlations with um, the sort of general social economic conditions of that particular area. Um, so yeah, and I think it's important that you recognise that we're all individuals, but we all live in different areas of the country or indeed the world sometimes. What would you highlight as a biggest difference to approach well-being for office worker and non-office worker? Often they're sat in front of a, a screen and have access to online resources and perhaps time to do that. The contrary is, of course, being sedentary, sat down all day, and have you got your setup with your screen and chair and everything appropriately? Do you get up and walk around enough? Do you take enough breaks? I think it's easier to reach an audience that are head office based or office based because of that access to email and other digital services. I think the challenge is actually you forget and you become a slave to the, the screen and the chair. We are at the end of our podcast and I still have the two last questions. How do you see the role of being leader in the future? Um, I think in the short term, there is um, an immediate need to focus on how people are managing their financial well-being, um, plus also mental health. Um, the UK is not alone in seeing a growth in those two areas of concern right now. Uh, you'll also see expectation that employees will expect much more personalization. They'll expect services and well-being to become integrated into the way um, employers operate. Um, so it's not okay to have 10 different things all dotted around. People expect to be able to access it, use it easily, but through one source. We'll see more digital first um, solutions emerge. And from a line manager's perspective, they need to be aware of what's available and actually how to navigate the way through. Um, they don't need to be health experts, but they do need to have a kind of a sense, um, setting the cultural tone of actually why people are important to not just their team, but the business and working in a way which is consistent with that. Um, talking about well-being and then flogging people for 14 hours a day isn't the way to go, right? So um, you just burn people out um, and people will see through that. Longer term, then there's the impact of long COVID. There's the chronic diseases like diabetes that need to be addressed in society as a whole, but in the workforce as well. You mentioned financial and mental health rising more, uh, personalization and the long COVID. What's your very simple advice for these well-being leaders? My advice to them is, uh, it's a bit like the airline. Take your oxygen mask first before you give it to your children. Um, mm. Look after yourselves. What do you need for your own personal well-being? Find, if you don't know, go and look but get balance into your own life. You need to be able to get good night's sleep. You need to be getting some regular time outside, exercise outside, um, and get some balance around how you spend your time because um, you're no good to your team um, if you burn out. Especially for well-being leaders, not doing this, but for any leaders, right? It's exactly that. Very controversial. Mm -hmm. Exactly that. Yeah. Yeah. And we know that you are very much into sports and painting. So we got a sense already what's your recharge activity. But we are more curious to hear it also from you. Taking my own medicine. So I deliberately chose to step back from full-time work 
to create a, a portfolio of um, different work activities. Um, and that wasn't about um, who I work for. So I love working for John Lewis Partnership. But it was more around taking control around how I spend my time and then what things I choose to work with or who I choose to work with. Um, and so that's been important. I think from a balanced point of view, I walk every day. On average, I'll do six and a half, seven kilometres a day um, outside in the fields. And we've got some beautiful countryside around us, so we're very lucky for that. Um, I mix that with um, painting um, in the summer, spending lots of time at the ocean as I can, as much time at the coast as I can. Um, and also um, with people that are close to me. So um, I've got a very strong and close friendship group but also good family um, connections. And so making time to spend with them um, watching sport and doing all those things, um, going out for meals. So it's about people, it's about relationships, it's about um, having some control over how you spend your time and enjoying that time. Thanks a lot for your time. We learned a lot. I learned a lot personally from you today. We are looking forward also to see how your new path, the portfolio career advances and maybe invite you back in the future. Be happy to, Riga. Nice to see you. Thank you again for inviting me to attend. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Wellbeing Designers podcast. To join the movement of the Wellbeing Designers, reach out via LinkedIn or email hello at rekadeak.com. R-E-K-A-D-E-A-K. I am keen to hear about your story, your ideas and feedbacks. Together, we can design the future of well-being and make workplaces fit for humans. Thank <laughs> you.